Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey friends, this is Engage 360 at Denver Seminary. Welcome. Glad to have you with us again. My name is Don Payne and we are going to have a conversation today about something that might seem to some ears a little bit philosophical, but it ends up having a lot of um, very street-level impact on lots and lots of lives. You may have heard the word deconstruction. Uh, now, we're not talking about demolition, like of undoing buildings or things like that. Uh, when we talk about deconstruction, we're using a word that uh, seems to have been generated uh, largely within European literary criticism and philosophy, but in the last few years, the word deconstruction has taken on sort of a popular character and You'll hear it a lot these days in reference to uh, people experiencing the dismantling of their faith, the deconstruction of their faith. And if you're listening at all to conversations, particularly with um, younger adults, that may be, um, may be narrowing it a little bit more than it needs to, but I think this often is with younger adults who are experiencing uh, doubt, disillusionment, unsettlement in their faith, and questioning their faith at what seems to be almost unprecedented levels. But we're going to have a conversation about that uh, today with our graduate, Anthony Pieri. Anthony, welcome to Engage 360. Hey, Don. uh, Glad to be on with you. Uh, Anthony is in the greater Chicagoland area and has been, I think, living and serving there for, for some time. But Anthony has, uh, in the last year or two, really found himself engaged with this whole phenomenon of deconstruction and skepticism and doubt, uh, almost as a sole ministry focus, I think. And so we want to draw from his wisdom, draw from his experiences about that. So, Anthony, first of all, uh, tell us a little bit about your own personal and ministry experience, and then how that connect, how you found your way into uh, dealing so much with deconstruction in faith. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up a Christian, Christian household, did the whole Sunday school youth group, went through all that and started working for churches pretty early in music and production roles back actually starting like in high school. And so worked through a lot of that, thought that I wanted to be a high school English teacher ended up pivoting and ended up back in ministry. Uh, and I worked for a church in the city of Chicago for a couple of years and then became a pastor in the last couple of years there. And then my wife and I, we moved out of the city of Chicago into the suburbs. And I started working for my home church in the, the northern suburbs of Chicago. And so I came on staff uh, to, to pastor and then immediately we were hit with the pandemic. And so once the pandemic happened, everything got shut down. As, as we all know, everyone was isolated. And so we pivoted. We launched a live stream, as so many churches did in America. But we quickly realized that a live stream format, sitting in your house watching on a screen, it doesn't really replace the connectivity of an actual church service where you can interact with people. So we said, well, maybe we could do something that's a little bit more interactive. And so we started launching some some Zoom meetings on a weekly basis where we would talk about the sermons and it kind of started just as a young adult, small group almost. But as time went on, it started growing a bit and we were getting more and more people who were getting involved who were deconstructing. And I wasn't even familiar with this term. I knew the concept, but I had a couple of friends who had become, uh, they would 
call themselves ex-evangelical, so grew up in the evangelical world yeah. and then left. And so through a bunch of conversations with one of them, uh, basically just learned a lot more about the topic and realized that a lot of the people who are coming on this Zoom fit that bill. Whether they would call themselves deconstructing or not, they were taking a hard look at everything the church was doing in the world or maybe their beliefs. And a lot of them were saying, I'm not sure I'm even going to be able to go back to a church, even if they do open up. Hmm. And so we, we pivoted a bit to try to serve the needs of those people. We really focused in on deconstruction. And so the Zoom calls that we had weekly and the content that we were making on social media, it all sort of was with the goal of helping people through that messy process of deconstruction and ideally to help push them towards reconstruction because it's a painful place to live in the deconstruction where everything's confusing and you don't know what you believe and you're maybe shedding some things that are should be shed that were never of Jesus, but have become part of Christian culture. So there's definitely positives to that, but it can also just be a very scary place, a lonely place. A lot of these people describe that they never felt comfortable sharing this stuff with mm. their members. So, you know, different ideas about theology were just too taboo to even bring up to people. And so something about the the online format made it much safer, especially because it was with people who were strangers who would, they would never meet because we were spread out people were coming on from all different parts of the country. And so the anonymity almost helped people be more open with each other. So we would have a main session where we would have a speaker or an interview or like a sermon or something along those lines around one of these topics that causes deconstruction. And then we were doing smaller, small groups that met in other zoom rooms to kind of process it through together. Okay. And so basically how the ministry evolved. Yeah. And you call this dot church, correct? Yep. And that was a play on, uh, whether good or not, I don't know. Uh, it was a play on uh, how the URLs in, in churches, they moved from .org, and then they came out with one called .church. So I worked at a church in the city called Park Community, and it was parkcommunity.church. And so the idea of online church community, uh, that's that's how we came up with that. Day. So, good. so you just call it .church? Yep, so we just called it .church because yeah. it was all... I'm, I'm curious that or it's curious that uh, so many people who are in this process of deconstruction are still willing to engage with uh, Christian resources, Christian people, um, something maybe right off center of church, uh, but still something like church. They're still willing to engage that. They haven't just chucked it all. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think a big reason for that was just the heart behind many of our leaders and the speakers that we would have on is is many of them kind of reject the the black and white thinking the tribalism that we see present in a lot of churches it's interesting enough a lot of us who were uh leading some of these conversations in the zooms we we were borrowing much more from the seminary model of looking at things where when you're in seminary you learn about all the different perspectives right you learn about the heresies you learn about orthodoxy they're not uh, the, the, I've always felt, especially in my experience at Denver, was the professors believed that we were adults and we could be exposed to ideas without being corrupted. And and I think, uh, you know, the phrase teach you how to think, not what to think necessarily. Yeah, I think we tried to adopt that, which is very common in a lot of seminaries, but unfortunately is pretty rare in a lot of evangelical, non-denominational churches, at least the churches that I've visited and, and been a part of over the years, it's not always framed that way. It's much more, here are the 10 things you have to believe. If you don't believe all 10, 
then we're not sure that you can be a part of this church, or we're not even sure that you're really a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so trying to take more of the seminary approach of, of being willing to talk through these ideas and dive into them, I think that was what allowed people to stay engaged. Well, as you have uh, interacted with lots and lots of people about their own process of deconstruction, again, whether or not they're using that word, uh, as you mentioned, but it, but is you see them being unsettled, disillusioned, uh, really asking deep level hard questions that that seem to be uh, distancing them from the the mainstream of the church bodies they they are familiar with. As as you've engaged them, what are some of the patterns you've seen in terms of what what contributes to being in this process of deconstruction? What moves people into that? Yeah, I think it can be very different depending on the person. Uh, I don't. I don't think the process is is uniform by any sense, and I think a lot of times we've seen because people are in different parts of the country, they may deal with very different reasons, right? Then, you know, if you're in a, a more politically progressive area, you might deconstruct for one reason. If you're in more of a conservative political area geographically, you might deconstruct for another reason, right? But it's a it is like a laundry list, and there's a lot of overlap between some of these, and people will will you know deconstruct more for one than another or maybe more for two or three but it's really things like theological issues in some cases you know believing in a god who sends people to hell or maybe it's a question about women in leadership or maybe it's interpreting genesis literally can i really believe that the world was created six thousand years ago questions like that i've seen bring people to that place but then also things like purity culture which uh for people who are not familiar is sort of a framework for looking at sexuality that was taught pretty widely in the 90s, early right, 2000s, right. and led to lots of issues. You know, we, that's a conversation all in of itself, obviously. Uh, but then we've seen, you know, the church's response to the, the racism that has been revealed um, in so many different places. Or maybe it's church scandals, prominent Christian leaders who everyone looked up to and then engaged in sexual sin or fina- financial sin or or any of the number of people that you can point to, the megachurch pastors who have flamed out in the various ways, or it could be political reasons, right? The church becoming too political in, in one direction or another, too embedded in the politics. And so there's there's really a lot of different reasons, but I think a, a, a main one, probably if I had to say, would be more on the interpersonal level of the, the church just not really looking like Jesus. I mm. think that underlies many, many of the different responses. There's definitely a lot of the people, like the theological reasons you see come up, but I think the the broader one are questions about how do people, you know, love the LGBTQ community and, and not really believing that the church has done a good job in that area or the church is not loving the poor and the marginalized or, or whatever it might be and saying, this doesn't really square with the way that Jesus loved people. Uh, for better or for worse. Yeah, so it, it sounds like in in many instances there is this almost necessary detachment of the some of the phenomena of Christianity uh, from the core of the gospel or what what Christ. In other words, it it sounds like it's a process of having to uh, differentiate or discriminate between what really is following Jesus. Uh, and how do I see that packaged and iterated, either you know politically or relationally, socially, culturally? Um, because 
I, I think this is a natural process of, of faith development. Early on in, in all of our faith, perhaps, uh, we tend to associate the faith itself with the way we experience it, the way we see it packaged, the way we see it iterated. And then when when we start to become aware of disjunctions, we don't know what to do with those. We, we, we go through this, this painful and disorienting process of figuring out what's the real uh, the real deal of the faith, and what is a cultural packaging that's um, that's not the faith itself. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where there is some some real benefit to this deconstruction movement that I think uh, sometimes often gets overlooked by pastors. I think pastors can see deconstruction as a threat. They could see it as these are people who want to be morally lax, and they want to be able to go out and do what they want. And so they're deconstructing and shedding their church structures to live a liberated. Yeah. Just look at looking for excuses to do what they want to do. Right. Exactly. And I've heard that. And and you follow, you know, there's Instagram accounts of pastors and thought leaders who say that, who say it very openly, all this deconstruction stuff. It's just people, they want to sleep with who they want to sleep with as crass as that sounds. And I have not found that to be the case in nearly any of the conversations that I've been having, or at least people who are gravitating to our ministry, mm-hmm. it, it has almost never been the case that they are just people looking for, for ways to do what they want and wheeze a lot of things theologically or whatever. It's almost always a result of how do I square the Jesus of the Bible with the church that I'm seeing okay. in America? Yeah. yeah. And so I think um, we, we can look to examples even in the Bible of healthy, I would call it deconstruction. I think some people would disagree, but I, I think what I learned at Denver was that Paul, Paul didn't necessarily experience a conversion because he never stopped considering himself Jewish, but he had a radical, a radical reimagining of what it meant to follow Yahweh post Jesus. And he could look through the lens of Christ backwards and see, here's where our religion has gotten off track, right? Like the zealot violence right. uh, approach of taking power and, and using violence. And he can look back on that and say, this actually was wrong. And we need to deconstruct these ideas and move forward using Jesus as the guide. And Jesus himself coming to the Pharisees and basically calling out all the ways that it had become corrupt. And so I think every generation probably needs to do some of that hard work because we're always at risk of becoming embedded with the culture, embedded with politics or whatever it is, and, and the gospel becoming subservient to one of those other forces. Yeah, now the way you describe that, Anthony, uh, I, that probably leads, um, leads us to conclude that deconstruction in some fashion is an essential and necessary part of uh, growth in discipleship. Yep. I would uh, now, again, even if we don't use that word, um, even if it doesn't feel like that, uh, everybody who—I'll make a blanket statement here—everybody and anybody who actually pays attention to the world around them and thinks about their faith and thinks about their experiences has to undergo some kind of deconstruction uh, along the way in order to uh, discriminate between packaging and the core of the, of the gospel. It, it's yeah. I mean, deconstruction is an essential part of discipleship, even if we don't call it that. I mean, it, would you agree? Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. And I didn't come up with this. This has been 
used by a ton of different people. But uh, I think that there's a there's this pretty clear three stage process where it's con- construction is the first stage where people learn about Christianity and, and build their faith and they maybe read some systematic theology and they say, OK, here's all the nice and neat categories. We've got answers to all the hard questions. And then for whatever reason, life hits them, whether it's one of those reasons that I mentioned before. Right. Or something yeah. personal. But some of those categories seem to be hmm, this is not really totally working or yeah, the it challenges thing. assumptions. Yeah, the, the assumptions are challenged and and or or, hey, wait a minute, if this is all true, then why are these Christian institutions that believe all this stuff? Why are they so corrupted or whatever? And so what happens is people then move into this deconstruction phase. And so the the challenge and the danger is the deconstruction phase will almost always be characterized by some some bitterness, some anger, some some uh, heartbreak. Right. Because people are are always tempted to look back at the church and say, these people lied to me. You know, they they told me this, but they didn't actually live it out. And and kind of just ignoring the fact that people are broken and church leaders are broken, just like everyone else. And church members are broken. And so, of course, there's going to be hurt. And so if you get stuck in this deconstruction phase, you often can become more and more bitter and and angry with the world in a way that's not necessarily very helpful to you, even as a person, yeah. And the goal, in my opinion, as a as a Christian myself, obviously other people would say there shouldn't be a goal of deconstruction. The 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 purist would say follow it wherever it leads, and if that's atheism, that's that's fine. But as a you know a Christian pastor, I want people to reconstruct, and I I think the reconstruction phase. It's people who hold convictions. It's not just nothing matters, anything goes. It's people who hold convictions, but they hold them open handed and they're willing to say, I have convictions about these and this is going to be how I live my life, but I'm holding them open handed. I could be wrong. And there's like a level of humility that just isn't present in those first two phases. You know, in the construction phase, you can have a lack of humility by saying all of our answers are correct. My theological camp or my tradition is right. And all the ones over the last 2000 years of church history are wrong. That That's lack of humility. Yeah. And then the deconstruction phase you can say everyone is wrong. Nobody's right. You know, this and enshrine essentially the same level of pride, but in the opposite direction. So neither of those are very helpful. And so to me, the reconstruction phase is one that's primarily characterized by humility. And and but like again, like I said, not just giving up your convictions because we need convictions to exist in the world. We need to we're not going to we're not going to help any anyone's problems without having convictions. So. Well, it gives yeah that reconstruction is what um, what gives us the ongoing capacity to learn. Mm-hmm. Without, um, or I should say, maybe the link between de- the movement, the pathway between deconstruction and reconstruction, is the pathway to um, being able to hold convictions uh, open handedly, as you described, but still be able to learn, still be able to yep. be challenged. And the, and the capacity, yeah. we, we sort of gain the capacity for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, that was why I was so, I, I loved my seminary education at Denver for that reason. Because when I, I came on, and I looked at some other seminaries, and some other seminaries are more like, here's the 10 things we teach, and we'll teach you other ideas, but they're wrong, and they're heresy, and anyone who believes those isn't a Christian anyways. But Denver was like, 
we have some professors on staff who are complementarian and we have some who are egalitarian. And so to me, that seems that you guys are willing to wrestle through these things with each other, to sharpen each other, to push back on each other. And that's just something that I, I think if that was more present in many churches, if people were willing to be okay with not every person landing at the same place and to understand that so many of us are in process theologically, that I think a lot more people would be willing to share their struggles with other church members or with their pastor and not just feel like they have to find these groups online, which are often very hostile to Christianity. Yeah, yeah. If that becomes the main resource, then it's easy to get stuck in deconstruction and become, I guess, a perpetual cynic, or it leads to a sort of perpetual agnosticism, uh, which which can be, as you described, Anthony, kind of an unlivable place. Yeah. Uh, no, nobody can actually live that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. But it, but it become it can feel like the only safe space to be if we've not had um, healthy, positive, honest guidance toward a sort of realistic reconstruction. Yeah, and I think pastors and churches. I think a lot of them are moving in that direction. The conversations I have with yeah, other that's, pastors, that's encouraging. Yeah, it's it's a lot of it's encouraging, and and I feel like more people are willing to think that way now, especially just because it's becoming more and more of a talked about phenomenon. Yeah. Like I'm not sure if you're following the the Christianity Today podcast about Mars Hill. Yeah, I, I am. As, yeah, that has sparked conversations between I think a lot of pastors who might might not have been willing to really look at it, but now it's like. That just that as an example, one example, there's so many other works that are bringing this type of stuff up. But I think that as the conversation progresses, I think more and more people are willing to think about these things. And I, I'm hoping and praying that the next generation of pastors really are able to foster that type of environment in their churches, that people feel free to share these things. Because so many of them who would come to us would say, I can't tell anyone in my church that I'm thinking about this. Yeah. I don't feel safe to do that, but I'll, I'm safe to share it in this space. So mm-hmm. I would much rather them be sharing it with their church communities than with us. But, you know, we're we're happy to create this kind of almost like halfway house in the meantime. Yeah. Do you, uh, you know, I mentioned in the intro that this this might be, or at least by my observation, it might be kind of generational in in the way it's being currently publicized and expressed. I, do, you, do you find that uh, that deconstruction is more prevalent among certain generations? Is it generationally specific or is it just not had been talked about before? Yeah, I think, I think there's probably always been some level of deconstruction in every generation over the ages. But I do think that this specific brand is probably more prevalent in the younger generation. And I know that you said it can sound a little philosophical uh, in your intro and this, you know, stop me if this is too philosophical, but I do think that the older generations who grew up more in a, like a modernist framework right. of, we can look at things objectively, there's black and white answers, we can uncover the facts. And then the younger generation is much more influenced by postmodernism, which is actually everyone brings in their own lens and nobody is an unbiased interpreter. And even facts themselves in many cases are, are interpreted and, and, and can mean different things in different contexts and things like that. So I, I think that the the underlying philosophical movement of the younger generation also is contributing to that. And just even youth culture in general being more rebellion based of we want to tear down structures that are evil and oppressive. And we see a lot of that outside of religion. And I think that Christianity is getting just put under that same 
that that same magnifying glass of, well, if our government is corrupt, let's look at the church too. What are we going to find there? And in many cases, we're finding there's equal problems in those institutions, which yeah. to me, the human problem of sin that pervades everything, I don't think it's uniquely a church problem, but I think in that's a big part that's driving it, especially among the younger generation that wouldn't necessarily be as a parent in the older generation that grew up with those different philosophical ideas. Yeah, well, you know, in my generation, uh, authority figures and authority institutions were, um, you know, just granted more credibility uh, yeah. right out of the gate. And going back to what you mentioned earlier with the number of public figures, uh, religious and secular, who have been exposed as fraudulent in one way or another, uh, uh, duplicitous in some fashion, uh, it's it's created this culture in which any assertion is suspect, mm-hmm. and any any authority is suspect until exonerated, and uh, th- then the questions really have more weight than assertions or answers. So you, mm-hmm. you live in this. I remember one of our previous seminary presidents uh, from a few decades ago, Haddon Robinson, used to talk about. Uh, not being able to live life when you're draped over the back of a question mark, mm. which I, I just find a, a real powerful image. You know, if all of life is a question mark, you you have an unlivable life. But the fact is, the questions are there, and we have to learn how to deal with them. And I guess that's that's really at the heart of your ministry now is helping people walk through those questions, right? Or through that questioning process, knowing how yeah, to interpret yeah. that, what to make of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And to say one more thing about the the generational divide, uh, I I I wish I could remember where I heard this because I would give credit. Uh, but it basically the idea that millennials were kind of this bridge generation that grew up believing that the big institutions had their best interest in mind. Yeah. Like many of the generations still believed if I get a really big, expensive four year college degree, that there's going to be a job waiting for mm-hmm. me, and they. And so we went through, we took on massive amounts of debt. You know, our guidance counselors framed it as school debt is good debt. You know, take it on hundred grand or 150. And on the other side of it, when we got our anthropology degrees and our, you know, whatever degrees, there were jobs waiting for us. And so millennials are very uh, disillusioned. Yeah, very jaded, very jaded, right? Jaded. Yeah, exactly. And they, they look around and they say, man, I've been duped. All these organizations, they, you know, they were supposed to help me, but they they've totally hurt me. And then the difference between millennials and the youngest generation, uh, Gen Z, is that Gen Z grew up in the time of, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, post 9-11. They grew up in in this world of we can't trust the institutions. And so they're less disillusioned and more just realists. And so my younger sister and, and people of her her uh, age She's she's in the Gen Z category. So many of her friends are just looking for stable jobs. They have no uh, they have no illusions about changing the world or growing the next billion dollar company. They're like, I'm going to yeah, how am I going to survive? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so many of them are going into fields purely out of there's a big job market. And so they would look at the millennials and be like, why did you ever why did you ever think that a bank was going to have your best interest in mind? Like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Anthony, what, what is, um, I'm going to move this back to your ministry at Dot Church. What is your ministry uh, with uh, people in deconstruction look like? For the last year or so, 
the actual mechanics of the ministry was that we would try to tackle a different big topic that causes people to deconstruct. We would try to tackle one each week. Sometimes we would take two weeks on a topic if it needed it, maybe even three weeks on a topic. But we would basically try to look at scripture. We would have sometimes a shorter sermon, and then we would usually bring on people who had already dive deep in this topic. So, for example, we talked about, um, we spent a couple weeks talking about toxic church cultures and kind of the the rise of the celebrity pastor and all that comes with that. And so we were actually able to get on Scott McKnight, who wrote the ch- uh, church called Tove, mm-hmm. him and his daughter, on, and we did an interview with them. And so people, people from the Dodgers community, they'd be on the main Zoom first half of it, they would be, you know, engaging in the chat and we would do live Q&A and try to keep it as interactive as possible. And then in the second half of the night, we would break everyone out into smaller groups. And we had small group leaders in each of those uh, with questions based on the topic to kind of dive into it deeper. So not really reinventing the wheel or anything in the way that churches have done things for a long time, right? Like yeah. consuming. Well, you're just giving them a safe space, though. Yeah, Exactly. I, I, I've heard um, heard that you kind of describe dot church as a halfway house for Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think I think that's a good metaphor because for a lot of these people, uh, after being in dot church for a while, they said, "Okay, I feel ready to go back to a church." I I wasn't sure that I would ever be able to, but I've wrestled through this stuff, mm-hmm. and I know no church is perfect, and they're going to let me down and have problems, but. You know, I see the value in the, the church community. So if you were going to try to take some sort of metric for success of dot church, to me, it's not I'm not super interested in how many people are watching or how many people are joining. The real measure would be how many of these people are willing to go back into actual church communities in their area. And yeah. so we did start to see more of that and w- was really encouraged by that. Well, what have because, you what have you discovered as um what what are some of the factors that make the difference between people getting stuck in deconstruction or moving into a healthy reconstruction? What is what what makes the difference? Yeah, that's such a good question. I I think I think it really comes down to feeling like you have a support network who you can talk to about these things. Because even even as people started going back into the churches, being able to say, I still have my dot church connections in my group that I can talk to as I go in, like, hey, I went to this church and it was crazy because of X, Y, and Z or or whatever. So feeling like you're not alone and feeling like you can actually talk about things openly uh-huh. without fear of punishment, I think that's the major catalyst to people being willing to, to move out of that phase. Uh-huh. Well, as we start to kind of wind this up do you get any practical guidance or resources uh that you'd offer for pastors other leaders is is they're trying to come along people who are navigating a deconstruction process yeah definitely i think i think there's a growing list of authors and speakers and and podcasts um so i can recommend some of the ones that i have found pretty helpful um i think the work that kristen cobez dumay has been doing around you know, Christian masculinity. And she wrote that book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne. I, I think that's recommend that to anybody. Okay. There's uh, obviously that Mars Hill podcast, Christianity Today, I think is really eye opening. Yeah, the, sobering, I, but sobering for sure. Yeah. Uh, J- Jamar Tisby's work on, on racism 
and uh, lots of other people in that space doing really good work. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of some other ones. I really enjoyed that. Uh, the Holy Post podcast. I think it's pretty. Um, I think there's a, just a good, healthy diet. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's Sky Jatani. Uh, and, I, I am familiar with Sky, not his podcast. but Yeah, it's, it's him and um, Phil Vischer, actually, from okay. Veggie Tales, which is, which is a fun combo. Oh, yeah, it's got to be. I don't know. They are you familiar about, with uh, AJ Swoboda's work? Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. him too. I, I just listened to his. Uh, he did a sermon, I think, at uh, John Mark, John Mark Comer's church about deconstruction, and I thought it was really good, really helpful. Yeah, I've heard uh, AJ Swoboda on uh, Preston Sprinkle's podcast, Theology in the Raw, and yeah. he's got a he's got a new book out called After Doubt, which I just read, and I, th- I would recommend that. I think it's a really helpful resource for the whole process of deconstruction, navigating faith tangles and such. Yeah, definitely. And Preston Sprinkle, too, I think great resource, his podcast, his books. I, I, he's been a really good like North Star. I, I think just as far as pastors go, I think he does a really good job of modeling that. Hey, we're going to be we're going to talk about the different ways that people have thought about this, because mm-hmm. I, I we're doing a disservice to our congregations when we present theological ideas or whatever. And we just say, hey, this is how Christians have always thought about it. And there's no argument and everyone's on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, Anthony, think about uh, maybe a pastor or or another leader, somebody who's involved in formational work who this is just now getting on their radar or they're they're just starting to see it but don't quite know what to make of it. Um, A couple of tips, even I hate to be this simplistic, but maybe even some do's and don'ts for somebody who's who's just now starting to think about this as a uh, an important part of their ministry with people. Yeah, I think um, some do's would be to actually try to have conversations with people who are in this in this phase, right? Trying to challenge some of the assumptions, because I think if you come from an assumption of people are doing our deconstruction for X, Y, and Z, I think if you actually start talking to people who are in the phase, you'll start to see that a lot of those assumptions are false. So I think I would encourage pastors to just have the conversations without having a goal in mind of, of basically... Uh, trying to get them back on the right path as yeah. quickly as possible. Just the goal of listening, I think that would go a really, really long way. And um, I think don't, right, would be to immediately get on social media and start posting all these young <laughs> people. But they just, they're just trying to do whatever they want. And that kind of stuff is completely unhelpful and will virtually guarantee that if there are people in your congregation that are deconstructing, that they're not going to, they're not going to share it. They're going to say, this is not a safe place for me to talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Anthony, this has been great. Thanks so much for both spending some time with us, but also for the, the way you're investing in this ministry. I couldn't be more excited about that. This is for sure. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. An- so folks, it's been Anthony Pieri from dot church coming out of Chicago. And we're um, again, really, really grateful for how the Lord's, using you in so many people's lives this way and look forward to more more good fruit and uh, hope that this has a just a lot of long tentacles of impact on on lots of folks who are uh, trying to figure out how to how to walk alongside uh, so many uh, and this and, and when I say so many it's like you know those are others this is in some respect this is true of all of us we have to mm-hmm. go through this we just have to have some really healthy ways of naming it and and walking through the weeds and the Lord is using you in some really, really great and exciting ways to do this. And we're, we're proud of you and, and grateful for what you're doing. Uh, folks, this has been Engage 360 uh, with Anthony Pieri, our guest. 
this week and, and thankful for you for taking some time to listen to us and grateful if you would pray for us at Denver Seminary and uh, check us out on the website with denverseminary.edu. You'll always find some really helpful resources there and we'd love it if you'd communicate with us. You can email us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. So until next time, I'm Don Payne. We look forward to another conversation with you. Take care.